It's great worshiping with you this morning. It's time for children's church. And so if you're pre-K through the fifth grade, you can head that way and we will see you in a little while. For those of you hanging out in here, would you open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And if you're using that Bible, you can find our passage on page 1003. So page 1003, Bible open, something to take some notes on, and you'll be in good shape while you're turning there. I want to wish you a a happy Father's Day, and uh, my prayer is that you find the joy and comfort of our Heavenly Father uh, on this day. Let me also be the first to uh, extend to you uh, happiness on the eve of our newest federal holiday, Juneteenth. I am stunned that we get to celebrate Juneteenth. It's the Uh, celebration of the final announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation. I'm stunned because of this. It is a deeply Christian holiday. Now, the lamestream media won't tell you this, but that's why I'm here. It's a deeply Christian holiday. First of all, it celebrates a doctrine called the Imago Dei, that all people are made in the image of God. That's Genesis chapter 1, baby. And our government has made it a federal holiday. I can be on board with that. Second, it is a sanctity of life holiday. And at South Shore Baptist Church, we are not just merely pro-birth. We are pro-life from womb to tomb. And our government is celebrating two deeply held Christian truths. And I'm excited about that. I hope it's a sweet day for you. Church office is closed tomorrow, and uh, we've got good stuff to study this morning in Romans chapter 8. My daughter Emma is in England this month. She's doing some work with some missionaries there, and we talked the other day on the phone, and she said, "Uh, hey, I've been keeping up with uh, the sermon series in Romans while I'm away, and they've been really good And man, I got a little puffy-chested. I was like, yeah, all right. And I I said, well, hey, I'm I'm glad you've been listening, and and I'm glad you're enjoying them. And she goes, yeah, but it's kind of hard to mess up Romans chapter (laughs) 8. She's not wrong. She is, she's not wrong. If you can't preach Romans chapter 8, just do something else with your life. Uh, Romans chapter 8 has always been a treasure for God's people. Uh, And if Romans chapter 8 is a treasure, then verses 31 through 39 might be the most precious part of that treasure. And why is it that these verses in particular are so valuable? Well, they are the pinnacle of Paul's argument that we are loved by God and that through faith in Christ we are truly, securely, eternally saved. You cannot find a message more important for the human soul than this one. There is no greater message, no better good news than to discover that God loves you. Now, there are many challengers to this message, the message of God's love for you. You may look at the events of your life and conclude that God may love others, but He doesn't love me. Or perhaps you were brought up in some sort of a religious tradition that taught you that God's fundamental posture towards you is one of anger and condemnation, as if God only loves you if you perform correctly. 
Or you may look at the sin in your life and assume, man, there's no way God could love someone like you. Or you may look at the sin in other people's lives and say, God loves me, but I doubt He loves them. So today, we are going to put this message to the test. The message that God loves you. These verses are sort of like a courtroom scene. In this courtroom scene, you are on the stand And you have been declared loved by God. And that's the declaration that we're going to put to the test, that Paul puts to the test. Paul puts you on display in front of the whole universe, says this one is loved by God, and then he invites the whole universe to speak against this declaration. He's going to throw questions into the sky regarding God's love for you and ask all of creation to speak against it. The questions go to every realm of existence, heaven, hell, earth, past, present, future. He asks all of created history to speak against the declaration of God's love for you. And let me give you a little heads up, the response from creation, silence. There are no challengers to this message. And my goal today is for you to know and for you to never doubt the unmovable, unchangeable love of God for you. In our passage, Paul asks four questions that challenge the claim of God's love for you. And these leave us with no doubt as to our standing before God in Christ. Normally when we read through the passage, I just ask you to follow along as I read it out loud. But this morning, I want us to read this passage together. It's going to be on the screen here behind me, or if you have a CSB Bible, you can just follow along, or a Pew Bible, you can follow along on those pages. But I want you to follow, I want you to read with me Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Let's read this together. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare His own Son, but offered Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Man, I could barely keep up with you. Good job. Beautiful, 
beautiful piece of Scripture. And so this morning, you are on the stand. The claim has been made to the universe. This one is loved by God. And to test that claim, Paul asks four questions. Let's consider each question. The first is a question about opposition. It's a question about opposition. And in verses 31 and 32, Paul actually doesn't just ask one question. He asks three questions. The first question is a summary question. Second question, that's the challenge question. The third question is an answer to the second question. He answers a question with a question. It'll make sense here in just a second. So his first question is a summary question. Look at verse 31. He says, what then are we to say about these things? What are the these things that Paul's pointing to with this question? Well, I don't think he's just pointing to what he said in chapter 8. He's at least pointing to what he just said in chapter 8, but I don't think that's all. I think Paul is pointing to his entire message in the letter thus far, all the way from chapter 1 up now to the end of chapter 8. And what is that message? Well, in chapter 1, Paul spoke of the unrelenting sinfulness of Gentile people. And in chapter 2, he turned his attention to the utter sinfulness of Jewish people. In chapter 3, he concluded that all humanity is broken in sin. However, there is good news. God has provided a righteousness outside the law through faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, he argues that this is how Abraham was justified. He was justified by faith, not by circumcision, not by the law, but by faith in what God told him to do. So Abraham's justified that way. Chapter 5, that's also how we are reconciled to God. It's through faith in Christ. In chapter 6, by faith, with Christ, uh, faith in Christ, we're united to Him. What's true of Jesus is true for us. And we now live as slaves of righteousness. In chapter 7, when your sin meets God's law, your sin multiplies. Law doesn't put down sin, but rather... Sin is multiplied by the law. It leaves us at the end of chapter 7 with this declaration, what a wretched man I am. But then chapter 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Holy Spirit gives us new life and brings us through every trial. So in light of all of that, in light of these things, if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what's the summary of your entire message so far? Give it to us in one simple sentence. Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 8. What is the summary? He would answer with this line from verse 31. God is for us. That's the message of Romans chapter 1 to chapter 8. God is for us. Even though we are sinners deserving of wrath, under His wrath, God the Father loved us and sent God the Son to die for our sins. And by faith in Him, God the Spirit dwells in us. The conclusion is clear and without debate, God is for us. So here then is Paul's first question about God's love for you in verse 31. In light of all those things he said so far, if God is for us, who is against us? Here Paul invites every possible opposing force to speak. Who in the universe has a claim against this child of God? Who has a claim that would override God's claim? Now, in this imaginary courtroom 
setting, I, I imagine this is the point in time where an opponent stands in the gallery. You're on the stand. Paul's peppering the universe with questions. Who has a claim against this child of God? And then the opponent stands up, straightens his cuffs and his jacket, and takes a step forward to begin to speak. But Paul does not allow a word to leave the opponent's mouth. Paul keeps speaking. He shuts them down in verse 32. He says, He, that's God, did not even spare His own Son, but offered Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him grant us everything? And slowly, the opposition returns to the invisibility of their seat. You see, there is no greater demonstration of love than when God the Father gave God the Son to die for your sin. There is nothing greater that God can do for you than He has already done. And if He has loved you in this greatest way, then won't He love you in every lesser way? Would He give you His Son but not give you His forgiveness? Would He give you His Son and not give you His love? Would He give you His Son and not give you eternal life? If He has given you His Son, then He has granted you everything. So there are no opponents who can stand against God's loved ones. Now, do God's people face opposition? Absolutely. Christians have never been without opposition. We've faced opposition of many kinds. That doesn't mean that Paul's argument fails. But rather, Paul's argument means that our opposition fails. With God for us, no weapon formed against us will prosper. Every oppositional force is a failure thanks to God's declaration. And should that opponent take our lives, we win because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the country we belong to. We're citizens of that kingdom. So is there anyone who can override God's position for you? No, no one steps forward. There's no claim against God being for you. And so we move on to the next question. You're not off the witness stand just yet. The next question is a question about accusations. Verse 33, surely someone has some sort of an accusation against you. Surely there is some sin you have committed in your past or some sin you struggle with today. Surely there's some mistake you've made because when you consider yourself, you see yourself as a, a, a regular failure. All you do is let people down. Your life is defined by failure after failure. And so when Paul begins this new question in verse 33, you might wince. Who can bring an accusation? And there you wince because if that's where the question ends, then there might indeed be some accusations to give. But look closely at how Paul identifies you in verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? It's not an accusation against Cody. It's against God's elect. Remember what Paul said last week, verses 28 and 29. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. He chose, he elected. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. 
God knew you before there was a you, and He set His love on you. And having loved you, He predestined you, meaning God in His grace predetermined your end. He chose, He elected, this is where your life will go and where you will lead. You will go all the way to the kingdom of God and His glory. You are God's elect. He has chosen you as His child. And those whom He has predestined are those He justifies. Now, Christian friend, you might push back at this point and say, but Cody, I don't believe in predestination. And look, that's fine. You don't have to believe it. God does. And that's enough. His Word tells us so. Look, God knows those who are His. And here in verse 33, your predestination is a powerful comfort when you face spiritual doubts. When the accuser of the brethren comes with claims against you, your heavenly Father can say this, this child of mine is already justified. She is declared not guilty of her sin. She has been given the righteousness of the Son. She is my child. He is my child. It has been this way since eternity past. It will never change. I have loved them with an everlasting love. So many Christians struggle with the assurance of their salvation, and, and I think do so because they forget they are the elect. Instead, we think of ourselves as the maybes. Maybe I'll get to heaven. Maybe I'm saved. Maybe God loves me. Brother and sister, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God's the one who's justified. He justifies you completely and totally. You have nothing to fear or doubt. So is there anyone with an accusation that stands, that stands against God's elect? And as we survey the cosmos, no one comes forward. So we move on to the next question. No accusations stand against you. The third question that we've got to deal with is a question about condemnation. So you're still on the stand. Paul is posing the questions. This one is loved by God. And then in verse 34, he asks this question, Who is the one who condemns? Condemners, oh, condemners, where are you? Bring your condemnation against the one God is for, the one whom God has chosen, God's elect whom God has justified. Condemners, let's hear the condemnation of this one. The question is, who condemns and what is the answer? The answer is found way back in chapter 8, verse 1. And you know what the answer is. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know the answer before he finishes the question. And how can Paul be so sure that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? How can he make such a claim? Well, he explains in verse 34. He tells us Christ died, Christ rose, Christ sits at God's right hand, and Christ intercedes for us. He said, Christ died. At the cross, God's wrath for your sin was poured out in full, and it was taken in full by Jesus. Every sin of yours, past, present, 
future was atoned for. The Father's wrath has been satisfied. Justice has been done. You can never be charged with sin again. Christ rose. In His resurrection, Christ is vindicated. He was truly God in the flesh, truly righteous, truly the fulfiller of the law, truly the victor over death. Christ sits at the right hand of God. This is a picture of one who is resting in triumph. He sits on a throne because he is king who has conquered death and hell and Satan. And he sits on his throne because his atoning work is finished. Christ intercedes for us. His prayers for us are heard by the Father. God the Son prays for you to God the Father. How astounding is this idea that God the Son prays for you by name to God the Father? But here's, here's my question. Is Jesus your only intercessor? Not according to Romans chapter 8. You remember what verse 26 told us? told us that the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. So God the Spirit prays for you, and God the Son prays for you. And, and why do they have to pray to the Father? Is it because the Father is cranky, and, and He's not convinced that you're worth it, or, or He's got to be convinced to be good and kind and benevolent to you, and so these, the Son and the Spirit are influential in turning the Father to your way for good purposes? No! I imagine in this prayer an inter-Trinitarian conversation that might sound something like this. God the Spirit prays, our child is in trouble and needs help. And God the Son prays, our child is in trouble and needs help. And God the Father says, oh, our child, the one we've set our love on, the one we've chosen, the one we've justified and called and glorified, then let us unleash heaven to help our child. Your triune God loves you and knows you and prays for you. Now, if you come from a, a Catholic background, very gently, I, I want to point out a big difference in doctrine here. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, you, you've been taught that the Holy Mother and the saints are praying for you, and, and therefore you should pray to them so they can carry your needs to God. But according to Romans chapter 8, who intercedes for you? It is not Mary. It is not the saints. It is God the Spirit and God the Son who pray to the Father. Your prayer is heard by God directly. And your prayer is responded to by God directly. There is no more important voice than your own voice in praying to your God. Jesus Christ alone is our only mediator. And so when you pray to the Son, you pray to the Spirit, you pray to the Father, you pray to the God who hears and moves. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane uh, 
once said this. He, he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But distance makes no difference. He is praying for me even now. Your God hears your prayer and cares for you because you are His and you are not condemned. So is there anyone in creation who would dare condemn the one saved by the Son? And Paul scans the cosmos and again, no one steps forward. There is no one to condemn you. One last question and then you're off the stand. The last question is a question about separation. The fourth and final question is in verse 35. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? This is a question about security. Now, what does Paul mean when he says the love of Christ? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Whose love is he referring to? Is he referring to my love for Christ? Should I read this as if it says, who can separate me from my love for Christ? And the answer to that is no. That is not the way to read that question. Because the answer is this. What could separate me from my love for Christ? Pretty much anything. I mean, there's a long stinking list of ways my fickle heart is wooed away from the God of my salvation. And if my salvation hinges on the quality of my love for Christ, I'm doomed. There's no comfort to be found in Romans chapter 8. It's a nasty chapter if that's the message it's giving to us. This is not about my love for Christ. This is about His love for us. And what can separate us from Christ's love for us? Paul isn't content to just offer some hypothetical. He's going to put Christ's love to the test here in these final verses. And so he throws out some options of things that might could possibly separate us from Christ's love. He says perhaps affliction or distress or persecution. These are the trials that the sinful world throws at us. He says, or maybe it's famine or nakedness. Lack of food, lack of clothes, lack of basic requirements for life. Maybe those are evidence. If we, when we experience that, maybe that's evidence that we've been removed from Christ's love. He doesn't stop there. He says, maybe danger or sword. So if a sword is put to our necks because of our faith in Christ, does that mean that He does not, in fact, love us? And what do we do then with this weird quotation in verse 36? It's kind of, I don't know if it strikes you as odd whenever you're reading through this passage and, and you're getting pumped up, you're ready to take on the world, and then you've got to read this jarring quote from Psalm 44 about sheep being slaughtered. Because of you, we're being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. It comes from Psalm 44, verse 22. It is a psalm of lament from God's people in the face of persecution and death. Paul seems to read the mind of his audience in this moment, those who were Christians from Jewish backgrounds. They were well aware of a history of danger and sword. 
And so as Paul's listing off these things that could be challengers to Christ's love, when he says danger and sword, then quotes Psalm 44, he's saying, I understand what the history of our people has been. I know the blood that has spilled because of our allegiance to the God of creation. I know the pain that we have endured together. And Psalm 44 is a brilliant psalm to quote from because not only does it voice this the reality of the suffering and dying of God's people. But do you know how Psalm 44 ends? It ends with a defiant statement of trust in God in the face of this death. It ends this way with the psalmist saying to God, Rise up, help us, redeem us because of your faithful love. Your love, God, will not separate us from you, though we are slaughtered like sheep. Paul's listed off serious problems. When we encounter them, does it mean that we are separated from the love of Christ? Look at Paul's answer in verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. What a great verse! And we love to quote this verse in a way that is totally incomplete and inappropriate. I am more than a conqueror. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Me. I, me, I do it. The power of this verse is not in Cody the Conqueror. The power of this verse is in Christ who loved us. If I don't have the love of Christ, I am conquered. I am not conquering anything. But because of His love that is unchangeable, unseparable, His victory is our victory. I want to speak for a moment to the men in our congregation. I want you to pay close attention to verse 37, brothers. There is a lot of popularity right now around writers and speakers who are informing manhood apart from Christ. Their emphasis is on the conquering part, but it is absent of the love of Christ. I'm thinking of voices like Jordan Peterson, Jocko Willink, David Goggins, and Ryan Holiday, to name just a few. For sure, there are things of value that you might learn from these voices, but you need to understand they are selling you an inferior product because it is void of the love of Christ. They may help you make your bed and lift the weights or lose 10 pounds or own the libs, but they will never make you victorious. Every man finds his meaning and purpose in the experience of the love of Jesus Christ. Brothers, don't you forget that and do not be duped by a subhuman definition of manhood. Paul's just named seven threats that cannot touch Christ's love for us. And in verse 38, he names ten more forces that fail to cut us off from Christ's love. The energy is building. Paul is spitting as he's putting the words down on the page. The the energy is increasing. Neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if at this point you were to say, but Paul, what about 
I am convinced that Paul would take off his sandal and throw it at your head. Paul's point is that there is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing that will separate you from the love of Christ. You are His and He holds you for all eternity. And so one last time, Paul asks the universe, is there anything in creation that would dare separate this child from the love of Christ? And the universe is silent. The conclusion is clear. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But what if you don't know His love? What if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? You may think that you are outside of God's love and there's a sense in which that's true. There's a sense in which that's false. Here's the way in which that statement is false. Romans 8 tells us that those who are loved by God hear His call. And what that means is that they hear the good news that there is salvation through faith in Christ. And hearing that call, they turn to Jesus in faith. So to hear the call of God and to, re and, and to respond to the call of God with faith is to know the love of God. And so you've heard His call today. You've heard the truth about yourself, that you're dead in your sin and, and unable to save yourself. And it's essential that you recognize God's love for you does not affirm us in our sin. God's love has been given to save us from our sin. There are voices in popular culture that will tell you Jesus died on the cross just to set an example for us. It's like a metaphor that teaches us how to live sacrificially for other people. But if God loves us and affirms us in all of our sin and wickedness, what was the point of the cross? Why did Christ have to die for God to say, you're okay just the way you are? We're not okay the way we are. We are broken through and through. In every way a human being can be broken, we, apart from Christ, are broken. So the cross doesn't affirm us in our sin, but the cross affirms us in our dignity and our value to God. He loves you this much that while you were still dead in your sin, He gave His Son to die in your place. And so that's what Jesus did for you. Jesus is God in the flesh, God the Son. We just heard about Him interceding for us in prayer. He intercedes for you in another way with His own life laying it down in your place. He died your death for your sin so that you could have His reward, His righteousness, His eternal life. And three days later, He rose from the dead and His promise to you, a promise given in love, is that if you will turn from your sin, your self-righteousness, and turn to Him in faith, you'll be forgiven and saved in His forever. Friend, today is the day for you to turn to Jesus Christ to know this love in full, to lose all opponents, every accusation, every condemnation, to be held by Him forever and ever. He calls you to turn your life to Him. And when you do, no created thing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you make Jesus the Lord of your life today? Courtroom drama is always intense. And it was intense today for sure. Paul put you on the stand, the one loved by God, 
And he asked for any opposition, any accusations, any condemnation, any reason to split you from the love of Christ. And the enemy had nothing to say. But your God has something to say. And here's what he said to us in this passage. I am for you. I gave my son for you. I grant you everything. You are my elect. I've justified you. Christ died, rose, reigns, and prays for you. I love you, and nothing will ever take you from me. Do you happen to remember how Paul ended chapter 7? He ended chapter 7 with this self-assessment. He said, what a wretched man I am. But now look at how he ends chapter 8. In so many words, what a loved man I am. And indeed, what a loved person you are. What should you do with this? What should you do with Romans chapter 8? Well, the Christian who reads Romans 8 should walk away confident in their salvation. Romans 8 starts by telling us there's no condemnation for those in Christ. It ends saying there's no separation from the love of Christ. And every sentence in between those declarations speaks to us of the eternal security of our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in Christ, you are not condemned. By faith in Christ, you have the mind of the Spirit. You are the adopted child of God, a co-heir with Christ. You are sustained through every bit of suffering by the help of the Spirit who indwells you. God foreknew you and predestined you and called you and justified you and glorified you. And you are being conformed to the image of God's Son. God is for you and nothing can separate you from His infinite and unchangeable love. So have, have you by chance spent time in a church that taught you that you can be saved and then you can sin and then you can lose your salvation and need to be saved again? That church was without Romans chapter 8. And Christian, God is for you. Nothing can separate you from Christ's love when your faith is in Him. Nothing. Do you wrestle with doubts and fears about your salvation? Does the Spirit intercede for you? Uh, Did Christ die for you and now intercede for you? Uh, Did the Father not spare His own Son for you, elect you, and justify you? Then why be afraid anymore? Christian, God is for you. Nothing can separate you from Christ's love. Do you feel like you're fighting a losing battle with sin? Keep fighting. You're more than a conqueror through Christ who loves you and nothing can separate you from that love. What incredible promises we have as God's children. He does not promise us that life will be easy, but He promises that nothing will separate us from His love. Nothing. So the evidence has been heard. The verdict is final and forever. God is for you. May His name be praised forever. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for so great a salvation as this. Thank you for a love that is everlasting, a love that is enduring, a love for sinners like us, a love not just in theory but in practice, a love proven by the gift of your Son on the cross. Thank you, God the Son, for laying down your life for us. 
for rising again, sitting at the right hand of the Father and interceding for us even now. God the Spirit, thank you for indwelling us and interceding for us even now. Father, Son, Spirit, we praise you, our saving triune God. God, I pray that you would give strength and joy to my brothers and sisters this morning, that we would walk in the confidence of the salvation you have won for us and you have given to us freely through faith in Christ. May we believe your word above every accusation, every bit of condemnation, every opposition. Lord, let us hold firmly, knowing that you hold us firmly by love. And God, I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, that this would be the day of salvation. Lord, may they hear your call and respond to it with faith, that they would know your love forever and ever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us all stand and sing with thankfulness and joy for the marvelous, wonderful love God has bestowed on us.